0: that's going to carry us through this month of September, and that is why Methodism is worth saving. And some of you might be saying, I didn't know it was under threat, or that there was a problem, but unfortunately, ever since the called General Conference in February of 2019, it has certainly been a possibility that Methodism, or United Methodism specifically, might not exist in the same way whenever there is another General Conference. Of course, the pandemic has made that very difficult, and as of right now, we don't know when the next General Conference will be. But what happened at the called General Conference where we were trying to discern what would be inclusion and what would be excluded from our denomination meant that in the years afterwards, actually, that a lot of people have been trying to discern how can we amicably separate and what might that look like? Now, for some of us, that's an unfathomable thing, Because we are United Methodists, how could we possibly separate? But this is not a very old iteration of Methodism. In fact, United Methodism has only existed in the world since 1968, when the Methodist Church joined with the Evangelical United Brethren and made us United Methodists. But Methodism itself, that genealogy, that core identity, traces itself back Multiple hundreds of years back to a small group of Christians most of whom were Anglican in Oxford England who were trying to figure out how to put their faith in action other than when they were in worship and Those early Oxford Methodists were trying to be their very best Because they believed that that's what God wanted of them. They believed that that's what the world needed of them and that core identity has remained through the years it remained through the emergence and the blossoming of the methodist episcopal church in the united states it continued even though the church broke into the methodist episcopal church in the north and methodist episcopal south in the confederate rebelling states It continued when they came back together later, and it has continued through this iteration that we currently are experiencing, United Methodism. And while we are the largest denomination of Methodism, we are not the only. And some of you may have experience and background in some of the others. There's free will Methodists, just like there's free will Baptists. There are Methodists who are just Methodist church, There are Korean Methodists. There are all kinds of different iterations of Methodism. But the United Methodist Church is the single largest family within our tradition. And the idea that it might no longer be united is troubling. And how we are going to get through that, I have no answers for you at this moment. But instead, I thought that this season of going back to school for our youngest and for continuing to grow and try to emerge from a pandemic. And even now, as some of us have been forced back into isolation, trying to find hope for the future, that we would focus on the four things that I believe are so important about Methodism. They are not simply doctrine. They are not simply tradition. They are who we are. And because of that, Those are the things to which we should cling. Those are the things to which we should place at the highest standard for whatever we will be in the days to come. Whether we continue as United Methodists or not, these are the things that will determine whether or not we still have the heart of a Methodist. And so we begin today with our unparalleled understanding of grace. All Christians have some understanding of grace. There's no doubt about that, but how they understand it, both as individual disciples and as denominations, is vastly different. Our Roman Catholic siblings in faith believe that the church itself is an arbiter and the means by which we experience grace. And our Baptist siblings in faith tend to have an idea that it's kind of a one and done, right? Once saved, always saved. Not so in Methodism. In Methodism, from the very beginning, we understood that grace was a lifelong experience. It's not something that happens on a specific day. It is something that happens in our hearts every day when we are diligent about our faith. It is the belief that it comes forth as a relationship, as embracing God as God has already been inviting us in, And in the Methodist Church, we describe this grace, this one single grace, in three movements. And for those of you that are having flashbacks to confirmation, I apologize, but here we go. And the first is that I want you to think about grace as a movement. And for those of you that are music aficionados, or those of you who just have that gift for music, God love you, I do not, but maybe this will resonate even more with you, is the idea that grace comes to us almost like the movement of music or song. There's kind of a prelude, there's that opening of it, where all of a sudden you begin to have your senses filled with what is to come, and it builds you up and gives you anticipation so that you want to continue the lyrical journey. And that is provenient grace in the Methodist church. That is the grace that comes before. And as our choir sang in that most famous of Methodist hymns, of Christian hymns, if we're honest, is that grace found us. We were lost and we were found. That God came to us to find us, hence the parable of the lost sheep. And in that, in that first experience, what we are describing is that it is not us We did not go out and find Jesus as if Jesus was lost. We didn't cultivate our own faith because we are so capable. But that every moment of that first epiphany about God and our desire to experience our God is deeply ingrained in God having moved heaven and earth first. That same heaven and earth that God created as described in the creation stories of the book of Genesis, that all of this was God pouring out God's self, giving of God's self in love and care, and time and time again forgiveness. So that when we finally had that moment where we were willing to even consider that God is really real, God was already there. And God had been moving toward us long before we ever realized that we needed to embrace God. We do not serve a God that is distant and hidden. We serve and love a God who is right here with us. And that's important. That's our starting place. And then what happens? That next, that crescendo, that climax of the musical passage would be justifying grace. To justify is to be able to stand tall. To have yourself cleansed of not only your sins that you have committed and the guilt that comes alongside that when you recognize the ramifications of enacting your will versus God's, but also the eternal consequences of sin, which would be death. But God, who loves us and cares for us and forgives us, has even liberated us from that, so that on the day of resurrection we can stand tall before our Lord, knowing that is that same Lord that has enabled us to do this, We have moments in our lives where we can experience that justification. Those are typically high points in our religious expression. They are times when our spirituality just seems to not only fill our vessels, but fill the space around us. And for a lot of us, that centers around the sacraments. And in the United Methodist Church, we have two. We have baptism, and we have Holy Communion. And both of those give us the pardon that we need to know that we are not bound to our past. We are not the culmination of the mistakes and the sins that we have committed. We are a people who have been liberated from that, so that we can try again, and perhaps even do better. And so when we have the opportunity to feel the waters of baptism roll over us or rise up out of them, depending on the mode by which you were baptized, we can feel it in the movement of the water. And when we come before Christ at the table for communion, we can feel it in the weight of the bread. We can taste it in the fruit of the vine, in the chalice. We have the opportunity to feel it kind of becoming a part of us, nourishing the emptiness that would be within us if we didn't allow Christ to expand and fill those spaces. Those are the moments when we Really start to comprehend not just with our minds or our hearts, but with our entire being That God's grace is with us and for us Those are those moments that are mountaintop experiences. That's why both of them can be very emotional experiences for people and When we have those experiences you might think well, that's it or at least for communion. That's it till the first of next month right, but instead what we find is that something remains. Something stays with us even after those climactic periods of justifying grace, that something remains. Now, sometimes it feels like it's come a little bit further down, but there is something. We don't sink down to the depths. There is something now upholding us, raising us up, encouraging us to continue to climb back to that place of justification. And that would be sanctifying grace, that the next movement of God's grace is to remain with us. Both sacraments provide us that experience because we believe that with the laying of hands and the application of the water in baptism, that long after those waters dry, that God's Holy Spirit remains. For the most important part of the sacrament of baptism isn't actually the water. It's what God is doing through the water and through the presence of the Spirit. To give a piece of God's self to all of those who receive, who choose to embrace the sacrament of baptism, so that there's an indwelling of God's self within us. That same self that cries out to us when we are wondering if we should return to our sinful ways. That same piece of God's self that seems to give us the courage to step out in faith and do things that we would never do under normal circumstances that that piece of God's self keeps us grounded from within, reminds us who we are and from where we have come and where we need to go. And so that sanctifying grace of baptism, it feels like we can be made new. It feels like God is working within us. That's that sanctification, to be made holy, to become more like Christ. And that same thing happens at the table. And what's amazing about the table is that you can have this as much as you want. In fact, if I wanted to give it to you every Sunday, I could do that. That would make some of our communion stewards very nervous. That's a lot of preparation. But that we could do that. We could have it. You can call me, and I will bring it to you. Because you are always offered and entitled to this encounter. And so it is something that we will never deny you. We have an open table in the United Methodist Church. It means that if you want to encounter Jesus Christ here, you are welcome. We don't require that you've been baptized, as some of our siblings in faith do. We don't require that you be a member of our denomination or even of this local church. If you want to encounter Jesus Christ, then you are welcome here. And that is grace at work. That is grace speaking to us, inviting us. Encouraging us to experience God here. Now, if you've come from another background of Christianity, another denominational origin, or you've had experience there, you'll know that this is the one place none of us agree on what's happening. And so when you get to be around a bunch of clergy from other denominations, I like to just listen to them, because inevitably, they're going to argue one of three points. We've got transubstantiation, consubstantiation, Zwingliism, also also known as memorialism or simply a remembrance. And as they continue to bicker about this over who is right and who came first and who's really keeping the Bible in the core of their theology, at some point they turn to the Methodists and they say, well, what do you say is happening here? And there's nothing better than looking at your colleagues and going, it's a holy mystery. It's a very unsatisfying answer to them. What do you mean it's a mystery? It's a mystery. Something powerful happens here. Something wonderful happens here. And they're going, well, what is it? (laughs) I don't know. I know that what happens here is bigger than human words. I know that what happens here is greater than a doctrine to try to encapsulate it and put it into a box. Because what I told the children is true. What you had at the table the last time you were here may not be what you have this time. For God knows what you have endured. God knows what you are experiencing now. And God, in supreme knowledge, knows what is coming ahead. And God will always give you what you need today, here. And so what I need may not be what you need. It may not be what she needs. But thank God that we serve a God who knows exactly what we need and feeds us the way we need to be fed. And so this is an opportunity to experience something different. And our understanding that grace is not one-dimensional, that grace is not a one-time experience, is actually the Methodist way of saying that God's grace is a relationship. It is an understanding that we will wander, we will fail, and sometimes we will just step away. And if you've ever had that experience with an earthly relationship, then you know the fear and the trepidation about trying to come back. You know that if you haven't been tending to a relationship and the other person is hurt or upset, that you have to confront that that you're going to have to come back and deal with their pain and their suffering, and sometimes that alone keeps us from coming back, even though we yearn to do it. And Jesus recognized that in earthly relationships, and that our experience here in this plane, in this realm of earth, might keep us from coming back to God when we wander. And so he told a story. He gave us a story to remind us That just because we have had a bad experience coming back to another person does not mean that that is how God welcomes us home. Jesus told a story about the prodigal son. A human being like most of us who thought that perhaps he could make his own way. Just maybe now after he had grown into adulthood that he knew what was best for him and he was going to live life his way. And so he left his father's house And he went out into the world, and he tried to do it his way. And it didn't work. The more and more he pushed for his independence and his separation from his divine parent, the more and more he suffered. And finally, he recognized how low he had sunk. And he wanted to come home. And the story that Jesus tells spends a little bit of time talking about the wrestling and the preparation that that child went through and how he was going to preemptively say to his father when he arrived back at his father's home i know that i was wrong and you don't have to welcome me back and you don't have to receive me as i left i left as one of your children but i will come back as a servant i understand that you don't have to welcome me home at all and the father in the story like our divine parent in heaven didn't just welcome him back at the same status that he left, but through a celebratory party that he had come home. And that is the God that we experience. If it has been decades since you had communion, it is the same hospitality as the last time you were here. And if you are wondering whether or not God can forgive you, because sometimes we can't even forgive ourselves, yes. Perhaps it is only because God forgives us that we are even willing to consider that we can start to forgive ourselves. And so God's grace is helping to perfect us by God's love. God's grace is an encounter with divine love, divine care, and forgiveness. And because of those things that we need so desperately, whether we want to accept that or not, because of those things, our spirits seem to yearn for these moments. It's like there's something within us that recognizes that something is going to happen here, and we're not even sure what it is, and we probably couldn't articulate it even if we tried, but we know that when we gather together and we ask for God's forgiveness and we pray that the Holy Spirit transform these elements as well as those who will receive them, by the grace of God, it happens. And that's the most wonderful thing about a holy mystery. I don't have to understand how. I just have to know that it does. And I do. I have seen it. I have tasted it. I have felt it with my hands. I have watched it with my eyes. And I can testify unequivocally that in a few moments when we ask for the Holy Spirit to transform here and here, that it will and that we will not leave the same people who came here. And those moments in our lives are those times where God is speaking a language that is greater than that of the tongue, that can be heard even when we cannot use our ears. It speaks to the very fiber and core of our being. And that is too great for words. And so we have an experience that speaks volumes, when we as human beings would fail to even paint this most simplistic of pictures. But we are here in a traditionalist worship service, and so we value tradition. There is something comforting about these traditions that we have that have been carried through the ages. I did not grow up in a contemporary church. Ironically, now it is contemporary. It was not at the time. It was very traditional, and I didn't grow up in that kind of stream that was emerging through the 60s of contemporary Christianity. That was just not where I was. I grew up in a traditionalist church. I grew up in a church that had acolytes. I was one of them. grew up in a church that had some very consistent liturgy and orders of worship. And that was home. There was something stable in knowing You might not know which passage we were going to have, but you knew that there was going to be a passage. You knew that we were going to process in. You knew that we would recess out. You knew that there were going to be elements that were going to happen, and so because of that, you felt tethered and grounded in the midst of the worship service. And I still feel that way. Right? There is something that is very comforting of knowing that you are also taking part in something that Christians have valued for decades, if not centuries for knowing that there is something greater, a legacy bigger than ourselves that we are participating in when we come to traditional worship. And that is a beautiful thing. And that is also part of God's grace. The reason that some things become tradition in the church is not just Methodism, but outside of that in the church universal, is that because people in a time and place experience grace profoundly in those traditions. That at some time, the first people that started to originate the order of worship that we have here, that those people felt God moving and speaking. And even more, they found that they could move toward God and speak back through the liturgical language of tradition. And so it is that we continue that. It's why we teach our children to do that. It's why we still train clergy to lead in this way because we see value in it. But we also see value in it because it allows us to experience God's grace. And that's why we preserve it. If it doesn't allow us to experience God's grace or share that grace with the world, then it is not a righteous thing. And in the Methodist Church, we believe that grace is such a core part of our identity that we have only three simple rules. And for those of you that have a different background, that's probably very refreshing because there are a lot of denominations that have many, 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 many rules. But we have three. Now, I wish we had two, because Jesus took 613 commandments and willed it down to two, right? Love God with all that you are and love your neighbor as yourself. I wish we only had two rules, but we are Trinitarian Christians, so here we go with three. And the first rule is actually really poignant. The first rule of being a Methodist is to do no harm. Do no harm by avoiding evil. That is precisely what the law was intended to do. Those 613 commandments in the first five books of the Bible were meant to help people do no harm and to help them to recognize what was going to cause evil, and evil is producing pain and suffering in the lives of others and in the world. And so if they knew the law, then they would be on guard and on lookout for those things that were going to hurt people. If you steal your neighbor's donkey, you are going to hurt your neighbor. If you spread gossip about your neighbor, you are going to hurt your neighbor. And so if you knew that there was a prohibition against that, then you wouldn't do it. And Paul actually says that in the scripture. That the law speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world may be accountable to God. That through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That if you know the law, then you know that people sin. Because it tells you how to be reconciled after you have sinned. If I have stolen my neighbor's donkey, then how do I fix it? What do I do? And the law told them exactly what to do. But it wasn't enough. The law is not enough. You can't just spend your whole life just trying not to do harm. It's not enough. And so our second rule is right in line with the ministry and the spirit of Jesus. Do all the good that you can. If you have focused on trying not to hurt others, God love you, but there is still work to do. And that is why Methodism through the ages and through every iteration, including the United Methodists, have striven in order to make sure that we are doing things that are selfless for the good of others. Our missions and our ministries to feed the hungry to give the thirsty something to drink, to welcome the stranger, to clothe the naked, to visit the sick and the imprisoned, these are things we do because God has called us to do good things. And so our second rule is in tangent with the first. And the third is the means by which we can even continue the first two. The third rule is to attend upon the ordinances of God. That's very John Wesleyan, the way that's framed. So let me paraphrase it. It is to stay in love with God by doing the things that God has given us. And some of those things you're already doing. And most of them invite us to use who we are as individual personalities to engage with God's grace. Some of them are very communal. And for those of you who are extroverted, you gravitate toward them. But some of them are truly places where those who desire a little bit more quiet contemplation and perhaps a little bit more alone quality time with God truly connect with God's grace. And the challenge for us is to learn to try all of them. Corporate worship where we gather together as the body of Christ, searching the scriptures together in community, either in Bible studies or small groups, where we have to learn to live together. What a brilliant God to call us to figure out how to live in community now in small groups of community when the ultimate end of all existence will be eternal community in the kingdom to come. So we are practicing. We are learning to set aside those sinful inclinations of ourselves so that we can fully embrace what it is to be in right relationship not just with God But with one another and so those means of grace also include our personal prayer lives as well as our corporate prayer lives it Includes teaching people to pray for and with each other it includes Encouraging people to recognize that prayer is not just a hallmark offering prayer is a transcendent connection and if you've ever had someone pray for you and you weren't right next to that person maybe you felt it I have had that experience where I knew that at a given time people were praying for me and I felt it and others have said the same thing I had a family that had a really tragic health Incident at my last church, and I remember that both uh, the husband and the wife were very active in my Thursday morning Bible study And so the next time that the Bible study gathered together we started off with about five minutes of prayer for this couple and I remember that when I went to visit them in the hospital a few days later She said were you praying for us in Bible study Yes, of course, we missed you. She goes, no, I could feel it. I could feel you praying for us. God is able to use prayer as a conduit to comfort, to help people feel connected because her husband was in the cardiac care ICU unit and people couldn't get in there, but God could. And through the power of prayer, God did. And that is God's grace. God's grace coming to him in his time of need. God's grace providing for his wife when she was alone in the waiting room all day. God is able to use us and these gifts of our tradition and our identity as Christians in order to help other people, to bless them, to uphold them, to call them home. And that is what is so important about our understanding of grace in the United Methodist Church. And at one point in the future, and I have no idea when, we're going to have to decide where we're going to go. Me as clergy, this body of Christ as a church, it'll be a decision. And if the church has to make a decision, I hope that all of us will use our understanding of grace as the core of our identity to be the metric by which we judge. I cannot be with a church that doesn't hold firm to this understanding of grace. A grace that transforms, that welcomes us home, and that sets us free so that we can try again and again. Because God's grace is not just sufficient, it is abundant. It is everlasting. And so we need it. I think there's a piece of us that yearns for it even if we don't want to think so. I believe that's why there are so many people who say, well, I'm spiritual but I'm not a r- religious because there's something inside of them that they know wants to be connected. But the longer you're a Christian, you'll realize that it's not just about you and God. It's about how you reveal God to others and how you let them reveal God to you. And a healthy church, a healthy denomination, has grace at its identity and its core. And that's what's important to us, that at the end of the day when we are talking or we are acting or we are trying to figure out who we are, at the end of the day, as individual disciples of Jesus Christ, we need to ask ourselves, is how I'm speaking and acting and choosing to be present in the world, does that reveal how central grace is to me? Or have I chosen some other standard by which to live? Because grace is like the rain. It falls upon the parched land, and it soaks in, and from it comes new life. And some of the life that was dried and that seemed dead suddenly resurrects and that grace comes every single time we need it and sometimes when we don't think we need it at all so may we be those people who embody that grace who embrace it and then because we understand that traditionalist piece of us we share it with the next generation may it be so in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit we pray amen Amen.